I wonder what is the response you and I think that Jesus Christ wants from us. When we encounter his word as we are even now, when we hear his gospel, when we see who he is and recognize his powerful deeds, what does he fundamentally want us to do? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And Jonathan, that is a big question that you just left us with right there. When uh, we encounter Jesus, what does he want us to do? Well, if we listen to what he has to say to us in the passage that we're going to consider together today, there is, in a sense, a one-word answer which is at the heart of this, and it is to repent. When Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels at the start of his earthly ministry, the great call that goes out is for people to repent. And to repent means to change our mind in a fundamental way, and particularly to change our mind about our own heart, our own behavior, and about God himself. It means to do a turnaround and to say, no, I was, I've been wrong in my attitude toward the Lord. I've been wrong in my behavior, and I, I now need to submit to him, and I, I indeed need his forgiveness. So the one-word answer is to repent, but to do that, we need to have a recognition of who Jesus is and take seriously the fact that he is the Savior and Lord that has been sent from above. We're going to continue to look at that today and why repentance is such a good thing. So if you will, open your Bible, join us in the book of Matthew chapter 11 as we continue our message, recognizing and responding to Jesus. Here is Jonathan. Next, we turn to the consumerist crowds. Those crowds, they, they didn't hear and they won't hear they didn't like what they saw. They were ready to criticize. They were quick to reject. They were unwilling to respond in faith. And so Jesus has these very sobering words for them, verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. The image here is of children playing in a town center, playing in the marketplace. One group of children plays music, plays the flute, but the rest of the, the children in the crowd, they won't respond. They don't like it. It's not to their taste. They won't dance to the tune. They won't play the game. Another group of kids takes a very different approach. The merry tune, it didn't strike a chord, so they sing a mournful song, a dirge. But still, there's no response. Nothing seems to please this crowd of kids. They're determined not to be happy, not to respond, not to be satisfied, not to play the game. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Children in the marketplace, they don't like that game, won't dance to that tune. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The, the children, they don't like that game either. They don't like that tune. John the Baptist, we learn, lived in the wilderness, wore a garment of camel's hair and ate wild locusts and honey. He lived a pretty simple, a pretty ascetic lifestyle. Jesus, on the other hand, he participated in society. He attended the wedding at Cana, you remember, and even turned the water into wine. He visited homes. He had meals with people, even those whose reputation in the community was very, very questionable. John's lifestyle, will it cause the crowds to ask if he had a demon who would behave like this, they asked. Who in their right mind? Who would do so if there wasn't something seriously wrong, if there wasn't something sinister about him? Jesus' lifestyle had earned him a different charge, drunkard, glutton, friend of the disreputable and despicable. 
You see, the children in the marketplace, they refused to be happy. They refused to like what they saw in the servants that God sent them in both the prophet and in the Messiah himself. The crowds wanted to be entertained. They wanted what they wanted, perhaps not even knowing precisely what that was, but the one thing was certain. They did not want John, and they did not want Jesus. And friends, we listen to this very shrewd analysis on the part of the Lord Jesus, and we must reflect how very contemporary it is. You see, we live in a society, don't we, of consumers. We are expert consumers, each one of us, opining on Google reviews and Amazon reviews and passing our verdict on what we receive, longing all the time to have our needs and our desires met, standing as little judges, self-appointed each one, rating product and service and experience alike based on their ability to meet our needs and further our comfort and give satisfaction And to our consumerist mind, Jesus Christ comes on the marketplace as one peddler of truth and of divine insight, one purveyor of fulfillment and life satisfaction. We browse the shelves of the local bookshop. We flick through the self-help and religion titles, and we ask, will Jesus Christ meet my needs, fulfill my desires, satisfy the longings of my soul today? Will he be the addition, the element that my lifestyle needs at the present time? The crowds of Jesus' day were consumers who left a bad review and asked for the next act to appear on stage, who quickly dismissed both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, looking for other entertainers to better suit their tastes, and notice the very simple word of comment that Jesus has on their judgments, end of verse 19, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. That is to say, authentic wisdom, God's wisdom, is demonstrated to be true, is vindicated as true by the actions it produces. The testimony of John and the testimony of Jesus, they are self-authenticating. They do not rest on the opinion of the crowd in order to be true. John was the promised messenger of the Messiah. He fit the Old Testament pattern, and his life of integrity that even took him to prison, it confirmed his calling. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He fulfills the Old Testament expectations, and his flawless life, his gracious words, and his miraculous deeds, they authenticate his ministry. John and Jesus, they don't rely on the opinion of the crowds for their vindication. God's wisdom is shown to be wise, shown to be true by the deeds it produces. And friends, as we engage with the person of Jesus Christ, with his words and his deeds, we need to to filter out the noise of the crowd sometimes, don't we? We need to filter out the clamoring of a society that wants its needs met and its lifestyles affirmed and its preferences pandered to. And we need to ask, do the deeds of Jesus and the words of Jesus ring true? Do they match the expectations of the Scriptures? Do they have the ring of authenticity about them? We need to beware the consumerism of the crowd. We need to beware it actually in our own heart because this is our natural instinct. We have wants, desires, expectations for our entertainment, for our fulfillment, and we naturally ask, will Jesus meet those for me? 
but God's Savior. He didn't come to entertain us. He didn't come to impress us. He didn't come to win a sale or to sign up a new client. He came to save us. He came to heal us. He came to bring us good news, and he came to call us to follow him. And friends, I think we need to heed the warning of the example of this consumerist crowd. We need to heed it because we are so naturally wired to look on everything from the vantage point of the consumer. Am I impressed? Will this improve my standard of living and make me more happy and more fulfilled? But we must not come to Jesus Christ like that. And we must not follow Jesus Christ in that way. I think it's actually very easy for us to slip back into this consumerist mindset. And we see it actually, I think, in our attitude to the body of Christ, our attitude to church. In practical terms, I think this is where we really see if we have imbibed the consumerist mindset of our culture, the consumerist mindset actually of the sinful heart. It's easy, isn't it, to sort of shop around for churches to find a fellowship where we will hear what we want to hear, enjoy the kind of programs that we want to enjoy, and have the kind of experience on a Sunday and during the week that we want to have. And if we don't hear what we want to hear, and if we don't experience what we want to experience, we become dissatisfied. We leave a bad review, literally on Google perhaps, and then move on. And it's worth just self-evaluating a little bit on this point, isn't it? Looking within our own heart and simply asking, are we in danger of behaving like the crowds who looked for the kind of entertainment that they wanted, but who actually ended up in the process rejecting Jesus Christ failing to see the Messiah for who he is because they approached him as consumers seeking an experience rather than as sinners needing a savior. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Recognizing and Responding to Jesus. It's part of our series called Living as Kingdom People. And if you ever miss a broadcast in the series, or you just want to go back and listen again, you can always do that at our website. Come to EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also do that if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That's a great way to stay connected with Jonathan's teaching. And you can find the app when you go to your favorite app store and simply search for Encounter the Truth. Well, again, we're in Matthew chapter 11. Let's get back to the message. Here is Jonathan. From the consumerist crowd, Jesus now turns his attention to the unrepentant cities. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. I wonder what is the response you and I think that Jesus Christ wants from us. When we encounter his word as we are even now, when we hear his gospel, when we see who he is and recognize his powerful deeds, what does he fundamentally want us to do? Does he want us, you know, to give him a try? Does he want us to start on a spiritual journey? Does he want us to maybe make a little space for him in our lives. All these we might be willing to do. All these might fit our consumerist outlook very well. All these might conform to a Christianity light that we might be ready to accept. In verse 20, we're told that Jesus denounces certain cities because they did not respond to him in the right way. The word denounce, that's a strong word, isn't it? It's a strong reaction from Jesus. And what is it that they failed to do when they encountered him, when they saw his works? Well, Jesus tells us they failed 
to repent. And that evidently, that was the one thing that Jesus required of them. Now, to repent means on a basic linguistic level, it means to change your mind. It is a reorientation of mind and heart that says, I was wrong and Jesus Christ was right. The things I chose to do, the attitudes of rebellion and self-determination that I chose to embrace that guided my life, those are wrong. I see that now. And the Lord Jesus Christ, He is profoundly right. And so in repentance, I turn from sin in my attitude of heart, and I submit my heart, and I submit my mind to Him, to His truth, and to His Lordship. You see, this is actually part and parcel of believing in Jesus, of having faith in Him. The opening call of Jesus' ministry was to repent and believe the good news. That's the first call that He issued. And repenting and believing are actually two sides of the same coin. You see, we cannot believe the word of Jesus and trust the saving work of Jesus without recognizing in repentance that we have been fundamentally wrong in our attitude of rebellion against him. Fundamentally wrong in our sin, our sin which necessitated his salvation in the first place. And so when we encounter Jesus... When we recognize that He is the Lord our God, He is the Savior who has come into the world, He is the Master whom we must follow, the correct response and the necessary response of heart is to repent, to fundamentally change our mind about our sin. That's what Jesus expects. That's what Jesus requires. So let me pause right here and ask the vital question, the obvious question, have you repented in your heart of hearts? Have you recognized that you were wrong in your sin, wrong in your rebellion, and that you need to turn away from sin and turn toward Jesus instead? See, that's the first step of response to Jesus. Repent and believe. It's a package. And if you've never done that, let me urge you, repent of your sin even today. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Him. Repentance is part and parcel of that initial step we take. It goes hand in hand with believing. But there is a sense in which the believer needs to be living a lifestyle of repentance. We repent at the outset in a very fundamental way, but we need to live out a daily lifestyle of repentance, of hating sin, of arresting it in our heart and mind, and of turning once again to the Lord in His grace and His mercy. And for us who believe, there is a constant danger that we will lose sight of this, that we will grow comfortable with sin once more. I don't know if you have a garden. I don't know if you're a gardener at all. I'm a somewhat reluctant gardener myself, only one really by necessity, recognizing that our neighbors will probably turn on us if we don't keep the weeds at bay. But in a garden... One thing that most of us will do at some point is to carve out a new bed for shrubs or for flowers. You dig out a new corner of scrubby weedland or grass. You, you dig it over. You put down topsoil. You plant your flowers or whatever you're going to plant. You, maybe you put down some landscape sheeting or something like that and throw some mulch on top. I don't know what your approach might be. But here's the thing. Your beautiful new bed will look nice for some time. 
But when you come back next spring, here's what you will discover. Here's what I discover every year. The grass is encroaching on the bed. The weeds are growing up. The tree roots are moving in. And to keep your bed clear and defined as a flower bed, it needs some maintenance. You need to cut the edges and make them sharp again. You need to pull out the weeds all the time. You need to chop out the roots. The bed, it was made once, but it needs to be maintained, doesn't it? It needs to be refreshed. As believers, we repent in a definitive way when we turn to Jesus at first. But we need to renew and maintain and refresh our repentance daily. We need to turn from sin continually and ask for the Lord's help and how we need His help. Ask for the Lord's help by His Spirit to keep our lives free of it. You see, that's what the Lord Jesus expects as our response to Him as a truly repentant people. And I'm, I'm just so conscious of how easily we become slack in our attitude to sin. That's true of all of us. I'm so conscious of it in my own life, how the weeds encroach again. It happens subtly, doesn't it? And perhaps we don't notice it quite at first. But if we stand back from the bed and look at it, we see that it's become a bit messy again, untidy. And we've forgotten to renew and refresh our repentance, our turning from sin, our turning toward the Lord. I just wonder if some of us need to learn the lesson of repentance once more to search our heart and examine our mind and consider our behavior and by the help of the Spirit respond rightly to Jesus afresh and day by day. I wonder where are those weeds encroaching in your life again? Where do the edges of repentance need to be cut sharp once more? Here in these verses, Jesus is particularly unhappy with certain cities for their failure to repent. And as we hear his words, we actually, we learn a sobering principle about God's judgment. Listen to his words of rebuke, his declaration of woe, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, two cities often noted for sin and idolatry in the Old Testament, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, a city notorious for its wickedness, especially its sexual sin, a city destroyed by the Lord as a great act of judgment, well, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Sodom was a byword for wickedness in the Old Testament. It suffered a terrible destruction through the judgment of God. Tyre and Sidon, shorthand for wicked and unbelieving cities in the Old Testament, godless, idolatrous. But those cities will have an easier time on the day of judgment than the cities in which Jesus performed his mighty miracles. Now, that's, that's fascinating to consider, even if very sobering to contemplate. You see, Jesus is telling us that there will be differing degrees of punishment when the final judgment arrives. And what will be key to differentiate them becomes clear. 
the privilege of knowing more directly and clearly the identity and work of Jesus Christ is a key determining factor. Where there is more revelation, more access to the truth, more knowledge of Jesus Christ, there is an ever greater responsibility to respond to Him in repentance. I guess many of us have had the experience you're going down a country road somewhere, maybe in the middle of nowhere. There are very few signs on the road, but suddenly you come upon a sign marking the speed, and you realize you were going over the limit. You hadn't even clocked it. You didn't know it. You hadn't registered the fact this was a, a 50 zone rather than a 60 zone or whatever. Or, or suddenly you come upon a sign bearing the name or number of the road, and you realize you've lost your way you've come off route, it's embarrassing, it's frustrating, but perhaps it's a little less embarrassing than it would be on a city road with markers on every block, signs everywhere with the speed limit and the road name. The greater the access to information, the greater the clarity of the truth, the fuller the picture of God's revelation and our required response, the greater our responsibility to respond rightly. Not that we can ever claim ignorance, or innocence. That never works with the speed limit on the road. That never works with the Creator who has shown His glory and creation and deserves worship from all His creatures. But here, there is a key insight, a key principle here. Jesus wants to set before us an important and sobering principle. There will be differing degrees of punishment when it comes to the judgment of God, and a key factor in determining that will be the extent of a person's exposure to Jesus Christ, to his message and his work. The people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had the privilege of seeing the miracles of Jesus firsthand, even as he stood before them in the flesh. Tyre and Sidon, they didn't have that privilege, nor did Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord Jesus had not yet come. He had not been made flesh. His glory had not been revealed in that way. But for the cities who saw and then refused to repent, their privilege, it was greater. And so too, says Jesus, will be their judgment. Friends, you and I today have not witnessed firsthand the miracles of Jesus, of course, but we have in our hands the full testimony of His words. We have the completeness of God's revelation in Jesus. We have the gospel. We've seen the cross and so our privilege, it is very, very great. Added to that, in our particular context, in the English-speaking world, living in freedom as we do, we have access to so much Bible teaching, so much gospel witness, so many resources, and so many helps to enable us to know the message of Jesus, to get to grips with the person of Jesus. We simply cannot claim a lack of access to information. Our privilege, it is very, very great. But here is the simple and the sobering question. Does our knowledge of Jesus, our exposure to His Word and His works, does it move us to repentance? Has it moved you to repentance? And having once repented at the Word of Jesus, are you and I living daily as repentant people? responding aright to God's Messiah, to the Lord and Savior who has come into the world.
Jonathan Griffiths wrapping up our message, Recognizing and Responding to Jesus. If you ever miss a broadcast or you want to go back and listen again, you can do that at EncounterTheTruth.org. While you're there, you can find out a little bit more about our thank you gift this month. It's a book called Through Gates of Splendor, written by Elizabeth Elliot, and it tells the story of five young men, including Elizabeth's husband, Jim, who went into the jungles of Ecuador to establish communication with a tribe of people there. Their previous response to the outside world had only been to attack the strangers, and the men's mission ended at the end of Spears. But that actually did begin a missionary movement, and we'd love to uh, send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thanks for your support. This is the final week to give your gift and request a copy. You can do that at our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or when you call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Thanks for listening today. For Jonathan and for our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller. And I hope you'll join us next time.